Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Excellent to be here today, as always. First, want to wish our director of operations and my booth engineer, Eric, a happy birthday. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah. You had a birthday since I saw you last week, so yeah. happy, happy. It was just a couple days ago. Yeah. Did you have a good, you have a good day? I did, indeed, yeah. yeah. I like to hear that. Fun times. Was it a good day to take your dog for a walk? <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Monday was super stormy, so... Oh. You Not know, so much. Maybe if you had them in an enclosed structure or yeah. something, you could roll them down the street. Then, yeah, yeah, lots of fallen <laughs> trees and stuff. Yeah. Well, happy birthday nonetheless. Thank you. So I was, uh, you know, on social media, as I do, and uh, came across a post that piqued my interest. And uh, we were able to work it out to have Justin Goodman, who is the uh, vice president of White Coat Waste Project join us today via Skype from Washington, D.C. Justin, welcome to the dog show. Thanks, Julie, for having me and happy birthday, Eric. Ah, <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Um, okay, so, okay, so first of all, I just want to say so we're going to be talking about, you know, we won't pr- try not to get too grotesque here, but in the interest of education and knowing what's going on. We will be talking a little bit in detail about some of the stuff that's going on in um, laboratory experiments that use animals. And this is something that I am sensitive about and that a lot of people who are animal lovers are sensitive about, which is kind of the point, right? But it can be hard to hear. So I just want to give you a heads up about that so that you can just expect that we might, you know, mention some things that aren't your favorite thing to hear, but you know, just a heads up, because I don't like to be surprised with this kind of stuff. But we also don't want to just turn our cheek, right? So White Coat Waste Project. So you guys are all about, there's kind of a couple main things here. It's like all of this money that taxpayers pay, like a lot, billions of dollars, that taxpayers unknowingly pay and don't get to say you know, whether they do this or not, that goes toward uh, animal experimentation. First of all, you know, not good. Second of all, that's totally wasteful and basically has no point. Is that right? That's right. I don't even know why you need me here because I think those are all my uh, sound bites. Well, I guess we're done today. (laughs) We're done for the day. Go to White Coat Waste. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so, so... First of all, there's, uh, you know, the money piece of it. So I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how this how this worked or that there's all this money that we're paying and all that. So will you tell us a little bit more about the detail of how that's structured? Sure. Uh, and I'll start by talking a little bit about who White Coat is. So we were started by uh, Republican political strategists who were animal lovers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, our president and founder worked inside an animal laboratory uh, as an intern when Mm -hmm. he was in high school, thinking he was going to go on to college and go to medical school, and was so horrified by what he saw that he 
kind of committed himself at that point that he was going to start his professional career in politics and one day would come back to this issue, build a skill set that he can use to fight against the animal experimentation he saw. So our group is a little different than others is that in that we are focused solely on government-funded animal experimentation. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the government, the federal government, is the leading funder of animal testing in the United States. It's not the pharmaceutical industry. It's not cosmetics companies. Actually, the government outspends all of those industries by about two to one. Mm. So the figure, the estimate that we have based on the limited information available from the government is that we are being forced to pay about 15 to 20 billion with a B, billion dollars a year for animal experiments at agencies like the National Institutes of Health, like the Department of Veterans Affairs that we're gonna talk about today. Mm -hmm. We're being forced to pay this money even though these agencies all admit how incredibly ineffective and wasteful animal experimentation is, yet they continue to devote a significant portion of their budget to this wasteful and obviously cruel practice that most people oppose. Most Americans, most taxpayers are opposed to animal testing, but we're being forced to pay for it. And our role in all of this is not only raising awareness about it, but we are working to cut the funding off for these projects before it, the checks are cashed. Because by the time a university or government lab gets the money, it's kind of too late. You know, the, the, again, the checks have already been cashed. So what we work on is exposing abuse, but also working to shut the faucet off for some of this wasteful spending. Mm -hmm. Do you know when this started? Like why, who, you know, oh, we're, so we're the government and we have decided to allocate 15 to $20 billion a year that we're going to invest toward this. Where, well, when did that start and why, do you know? So the problem, what happened is the biggest obstacle we have is institutional inertia. And that is that something that started a long time ago became entrenched. And there is now big business associated with experimenting on animals and these businesses have a very powerful lobby. So from the companies that use tax, that get taxpayer money for uh, breeding and selling beagle puppies to government labs, they have an interest in keeping it going. And the companies that make the cages and the companies that make the food and the companies that make the Petri dishes and the syringes and the restraint devices and the drills and so on and so forth, have a very powerful lobby. So the problem has actually gotten worse over time. And we kind of talk about this tale of two trends, that over time, people, and you noted this at the top of the, the uh, interview, over time, people have become increasingly sensitive and concerned and opposed to this practice. And we now have a majority of people who oppose animal experimentation, according to polls by Gallup, 
Uh, when you look at experimentation on dogs, it's 75% of Americans oppose experimentation on dogs. But while opposition has been rising, animal use and funding for government funding for animal t experimentation has been going up. Mm -hmm. And again, it's because there's these entrenched interests here in Washington, who's in some of them, their full time job is to lobby for more money to be spent on animal experimentation. Mm -hmm. So whenever the NIH's budget gets raised $3 billion, like it did last year, half of that money is going to be spent to test on animals, dogs, mice, rats, rabbits, pigs, mm -hmm. monkeys. Um, and I think when people start to understand that the government's investments in science as it currently stands means that a lot of animals are being tortured for no reason, uh, they're incredibly upset, and I and I can tell you as uh, as the person lobbying on this issue for our organization, most members of Congress don't realize the degree to which this money is being spent because there's so little transparency about it, mm -hmm. which is by design. Yeah, can you explain uh, what you mean by a powerful lobby? Like, what what is the relationship? What is the lobby? What does that mean? So that means that there's uh, trade organizations that represent the people who breed dogs and monkeys for laboratories and who make the cages and other equipment. So basically, these, or, these, these companies come together and invest money in an organization that spends time on Capitol Hill urging Congress to not only continue investing money in this practice, but increasing it every year because they are cashing checks as a result of it. And they want that to continue. And that's why you have some organizations that are literally, for example, uh, opposing very common sense reforms like uh, there was a bill in Congress that said you shouldn't be allowed to perform experiments on cats and dogs who are stolen from people's front yards. And the animal experimentation industry fought against that piece of legislation. They want to continue to be able to perform experiments on cats and dogs who are stolen from people's front porches because they can get money from the government to do it. Um, so that's kind of when you think about how uh, despicable some of these these industries and, and individuals are. Uh, that's the level they're operating at is they want to squeeze every red cent they can out of taxpayers uh, and oppose any reasonable common sense reform mm. uh, that would make uh, obviously make science more humane, but also could, je you know, they, they oppose anything that could jeopardize funding for animal experimentation. Right. Biggest problem, even if you support science, even if you don't in completely unethical grounds oppose animal experimentation, the, the government's own statistics are that 95% of drugs and treatments that pass animal tests fail in humans because they don't work or they're dangerous. So in truth, the only people benefiting from this, from this 15 to $20 billion in spending are the people who are torturing animals and cashing the checks. Because Americans, people like you and me, people who are paying taxes, we're not the ones seeing the benefits of this. Mm -hmm. Which is why we have an organization called White Coat, 
which refers to these lab experimenters, and waste, because there is an enormous amount of waste that the government itself has not really been held accountable for. Uh, and again, our sole reason for existence is to raise awareness about that and, and stop it wherever we can. Mm. Yeah, this is one of those episodes I need to remind myself not to use profanity. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're like stealing people's pets off their porches, I'm like, oh, yeah, that'd be a, yeah. Good, be a good way to die if it was my dog. I'll tell you that. Yeah, oh. I mean, the mind, you know, the mind reels. I mean, we have, you know, the big campaign we have, and I think what you saw that prompted you to reach out is, so there's a few government agencies. So we're talking about experimentation inside federal labs, not mm. right now for the moment. Not, I'm not talking about universities that are getting tax money. I'm talking about what's happening uh, beltway, you know, inside the beltway here in D.C. Um, there are a few agencies that are still experimenting on dogs, the, one of them being the Department of Veterans Affairs. And What's interesting about the Department of Veterans Affairs is, number one, its mission is to provide care and services to veterans. And it has a very specific mission as it relates to research, which it's supposed to only be doing things that are related to service-caused uh, service or service-related ailments that uh, veterans might be facing. Uh, it turns out nothing they're doing uh, in terms of dog experimentation has anything to do with that. But the VA also happens to be the only federal agency doing what is called maximum pain experiments on dogs. And this is their, and again, I, I'm glad you gave the warning to your, to your listeners, but they are purchasing five and six month old beagle puppies, uh, injecting their arteries with latex to cause heart attacks, and then forcing them to run on treadmills to stress their damaged hearts. Uh, and they are not provided with any pain relief uh, during this incredibly painful and distressing experiment. And at the end, they're killed. Uh, so the VA, because it's way outside of its mission uh, and because of the just nightmarish nature of these experiments, kind of ended up in the top of our list in terms of um, campaign targets. And there's been an incredible amount of support. Um, both in Congress and from the veterans community, because, you know, there's a lot of vets who are fighting tooth and nail just to get a doctor's appointment at the VA uh, and are infuriated to find out that instead of, you know, devoting resources to, to helping them, they're, they're torturing dogs. And it's particularly relevant and personal for a lot of these, these veterans because, They've either worked closely with dogs on the battlefield who've saved their lives or rely on service and working do service dogs after they finish their service for things like emotional and physical support. So it's really brought together a, a diverse bipartisan coalition of individuals and organizations who want to see this waste uh, and abuse stopped. Uh, and this summer, Congress voted unanimously to cut off the funding for these projects. Um, so there's been a lot of great momentum, I think, in a time where there's a lot of uh, political gridlock here, yeah. in, here in the Capitol, uh, you know, wasteful spending and dog abuse still is uh, bringing people together to get things done. Yeah. And that is a good thing for sure. 
Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Justin Goodman via Skype from Washington, D.C. He's with White Coast Waste Project. You can find them online, White Coast White Coat Waste. Dot org. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, not the White Coast. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, who are these people who, I mean, it just blows my mind that somebody, like I got, I know, like this is a problem all over the place where money just runs and there's no, like that is the incentive, but it's making money. It's keeping us in business. We're blah 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 blah, and that's the only thing that matters. And there's an there's definitely a problem with that. And you can you know everywhere you turn, basically, you can see evidence of that in our society. But it's like you're gonna put a puppy on a friggin' treadmill and make them pass out and have a heart attack, and like who is actually able? How do they do that as a human? Like actually do it and not, I don't know, like I just can't fathom how this is actually happening because this isn't being run by a bunch of, you know, droids or, you know, these are humans. Yeah. Uh, You know, unfortunately, uh, money can easily distort people's perception of reality. And I think that's a lot of what happens. There was a a doctor, I should put doctor in quotes, there was an experimenter at the Richmond VA. So just to step back for a moment, the Department of Veterans Affairs has 79, just at the VA, there, the VA has 79 animal experimentation labs across the country. Only three of them are still using dogs, and they're in uh, Richmond, Virginia, Cleveland, Ohio, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Richmond is where most of their dog use is happening in terms of the number of projects. And the way that first ended up on our radar is that there was a staffer there who had repeatedly botched surgeries and killed dogs, uh, cutting into their lungs accidentally when he was trying to give them heart attacks, uh, all manner of horrible things. And he, again, he, after about a year of doing this repeatedly and being written up for it, they banned him from the, the project. Uh, now, he is still allowed to treat veterans. So someone who couldn't even perform a surgery properly on a dog is now performing procedures on vets, which has alarmed a lot of people, including members of Congress. But this guy makes $310,000 a year that taxpayers are footing the bill for. Mm. So, you know, when you're, when you, when we look at the salaries, you know, certainly these people are not doing anything that's helping society. We can, you know, we, we spend a lot of time both ourselves and with medical experts and veterans advocates looking through the research to see what they're doing to help vets. They're not doing anything except taking home a very healthy paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of the, you know, if you look across the VA, the people doing these experiments are making between 150, 160 and $300,000 to cut up dogs all day. And they've got job security. And until we came along, they had a good thing going because these projects get rubber stamped every year. Some of them go on for decades and you don't have to produce anything of value. You just keep cashing your check. Uh, and that's, again, that's 
problematic from most people's point of view, except the people who are profiting from doing it. Um, but what's nice about this is, you know, you don't have, I mean, people can boycott a company if they don't like what they're doing, um, but we don't have a choice right now. But what's great is that Congress is really taking this issue seriously. They've heard loud and clear that people do not want to be forced to pay for this. Mm -hmm. And they've introduced legislation, several different pieces of legislation. The main one we're working on right now is called the Puppers Act. That's P-U-P-P-E-R-S, like puppies, Puppers Act. And this is bipartisan legislation that would permanently cut the funding for the most painful categories of, of experiments on dogs at the VA. And this is a version of this bill passed this summer uh, a, to defund the experiments for next year, for fiscal year 18. So this Puppers Act would make it permanent. And that's, uh, if you visit our website at prisonersofwaste.org is the site we have set up just for the Puppers Act. That's prisonersofwaste.org, and it'll bring you to our site and a page where you can write your members of Congress. Um, again, I look, you know, I look around at a lot of organizations and issues uh, that people are trying to get traction with. Uh, and again, in this political climate, it's been difficult mm -hmm. for, for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. um, but again, uh, you know, puppies and vets have really brought together uh, uh, an interesting group of stakeholders. And it's, uh, it's been an exciting year. Uh, Los Angeles, the, there's a VA laboratory in Los Angeles that was uh, breeding Dobermans to have narcolepsy and then injecting them with methamphetamines and killing them. And this had gone on for years. And they had told Congress and they told the media at a number of different moments, a number of different instances that they were only doing observational research. It turns out, you know, we got documents showing they weren't. And within a month, they had shut the project down. So a lot of this, again, goes on because people don't just don't know what's happening. Members of Congress just don't know what's happening. So there is just so critically important. And the fact that we're on the phone is the perfect example of, you know, the power of not only exposing these things, but also of social media to get the word out. Yeah. Um, that's how you heard about this. And that's how a lot of folks we work with um, are learning about these issues, are sharing them with their friends and family uh, and alerting their members of Congress. So when people go to prisonersofwaste.org, for example, and they write Congress, there's a button there they can tweet at members of Congress, their House members and their senators. Um, so it's really, again, it's, it's a really powerful tool. And it's the way, frankly, the way members of Congress are looking to see what people care about is what people are talking about on social media. So it's so critically important for them to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, make some noise, huh? Yes, yes, One yes. Yeah, go ahead. One of the things that um, is an interesting piece of this, because there's sort of multiple facets to this that are very questionable, uh, you know, the animal welfare issue, the 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 money issue, and then this whole like um, doing experiments that aren't really doing much. Like you say on the on your website, uh, you know, uh, animal experiment experimenters hop on the gravy train and often ride it for decades at great expense to taxpayers without producing anything of value. And that's kind of a curious piece of this. Like there's no accountability. 
it's like, hey, so what'd you guys, you know, what'd you come up with? And, you know, like, so is that question being asked at all or is it just they're just, you know, keeping the hamster wheel going, so to speak? Yeah, they're 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 keep they're staying on the treadmill. So, no, that's so there's two pieces to the work we do. One, I think I mentioned, you know, I said I use the word expose and I'll talk about that a little bit. So, yes, we're trying to defund individual projects, just stop things in their tracks. Um, but a lot of the work we're doing is improving accountability and transparency. So right now it is impossible or incredibly difficult for any person to go online to a government website, for example, and find out, you know, if there's animal experiments happening in their community, who's paying for them, what's being done to animals mm. and what the results are. Uh, it's actually impossible to, for someone to figure that out. It just, it, there's no way to do it. Um, so we've been working with members of Congress who are looking at ways to improve people's access to information about what's being done and what we're get, what it costs and what we're getting out of it. So the uh, a bipartisan group of members last year, about this time last year actually, wrote a letter to the Government Accountability Office asking for an audit. This was actually a year to the date today of when we held a briefing on Capitol Hill about this. Um, but these members requested the Government Accountability Office conduct an audit of why the heck it's so difficult to find out what we're paying for and what we're getting out of it. And the GAO is actually in the process right now of doing a major study that hopefully will be done maybe in six months of how they can improve the government databases and other systems so that people like you and me, regular taxpayers, do not have to submit a Freedom of Information Act request that takes a year to fulfill and may be very expensive mm. uh, at basic information about what we're paying for. And this is a problem that's, the, the lack of transparency is one of the reasons why this stuff continues, just because again, it's so difficult for us to figure out it's happening in the first place. Sure. The second piece of that is that there's no place for you to go or for me to go that's easily accessible to determine what we're getting out of these projects, you know, in a way that lay people can understand. Because just because a, a government experimenter is publishing lots of papers and journals doesn't mean that there are any public health benefits in the end. And what we're funding science for and what the government is funding research for is to improve people's lives. And the only people's lives who it's improving right now are the people who are torturing dogs and getting paychecks from it. They're not improving your life and my life or people at the department, you know, who rely on the Department of Veterans Affairs for treatment. Mm -hmm. So we have some legislation as well as these other efforts to, again, just make it easier. So we're being forced to pay for this. We're working on resolving that problem. But in the meantime, we people have a right to know what they're paying for. And we as of right now, we don't. Mm -hmm. And it's so much 15 to 20 billion dollars. Yeah. And this is and I can tell you that the industry, both people who work inside the federal government and get paid to conduct or facilitate animal experiments, as well as universities and professors and anyone else involved in this, they are fighting tooth and nail against anything that would increase people's ability to find out what they're paying for. Sure. 
They are on Capitol Hill actively lobbying. We look at the lobbying disclosure forms for all of these organizations, and they have our issues listed on them. They are in congressional offices telling members of Congress to, to decrease protections for animals, to oppose anything that would make the process more accountable and more transparent to taxpayers. They just don't want people to know what's going on, and they want to, they want to keep cashing their checks. That is the reality of it. They won't debate. They don't want to have a discussion. They just want to quietly keep, as you say, from our website, the gravy train chugging along. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, it, it's, it's obviously disturbing. Um, but when you understand that, when you understand this is about money and not about good science, then that's why white code exists. It's to just cut the faucet off. And our perspective on these things, and this is why we're different than other animal organizations, as an organization, we're not, we don't have a position against all animal testing. We just say, because the government is funding most of it, that we shouldn't be forced to pay for it. And if there is something that is truly valuable, then surely a private foundation or a pharmaceutical or biotech company will invest in that. But I would bet my salary that those companies, those private sector organizations are not going to spend 30 years worth of time and money on something that's not going to be beneficial to anybody. Yeah. And unfortunately, the government is happy to do that, as they are in so many other cases, uh, to flush money down the toilet. So that's kind of our challenge to this, this industry is find your own money. You know, if you have such a great idea that's going to save people's lives, find your own money to do it. But when we know 95% of this stuff is an abject failure, and in the meantime, we're wasting billions of dollars, people are suffering, vets can't get a doctor's appointment, uh, it's just unjustifiable to continue the way it's been going. Mm -hmm. And again, that's why we're focused on cutting the money in the first place before these projects can even get started. Yeah. Okay, so I've got two questions. Uh, sure. First, um, and... I've, this is like episode number 450-something of our show, and um, my wife is actually listening to this one, so she's super interested, and she texted me a question for you. <laughs> oh, please. And it's about, um, uh, does the NIH work to convince nonprofits that raise money for cures or research for diseases like cancer or ALS that animal testing is necessary for the research to be fruitful? Very much so. Mm. You know, they, the problem with these agencies is they speak out of both sides of their mouth. On one hand, the NIH has web pages dedicated to saying how 95% of animal tests fail and they need more money to develop alternatives to animal testing. The NIH literally has a website set up about that. And then they have another website says, no, 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 no. We need to keep getting these billions of dollars for more animal testing. So basically, they want money wherever they can get it. And they have, are very vocal. They, and to, to, to more directly to your question, they are very uh, openly lobbying on a regular basis for both partnerships that involve more animal testing and to continue receiving money themselves for animal testing. Simply to and, keep the industry of it going, not because yeah. it's actually 
you know, providing any, um, you know, illuminating information about anything. Absolutely. Because half of their, you know, half of their faculty members at the NIH even itself, you know, if we're looking, if they, they say that half their budget is spent on animal testing. So they have a $32 billion budget, 15, uh, that's a 47% of that is 15 billion. So they're spending 15 billion on animal testing. And that's both at universities and both internally. So they have a lot of staff members, faculty members who rely on animal testing to pay their bills and their mortgage and their car payment. And obviously those people have influence, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, it's, uh, it's, this isn't about doing good science for the great, the, the good of humanity. Right. This is about greed. And what that translates to for the rest of us is waste and abuse and even fraud in some cases where you have people uh, who are receiving government money uh, trying to, you know, cut corners and fudge the numbers on their research to make it look more productive than it is because there's a big paycheck attached to it if they can keep it going. So the, the system is just so distorted. There's no incentives to innovate and actually do anything. There's actually incentives right now to continue these projects that are useless because they'll keep getting money no matter what. Mm-hmm. So try to, why try to cure something if there's more money in not curing yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, and that's what we're up against. You know, this isn't, again, I, you know, I think this isn't about the scientific arguments or the ethical arguments so much. This is about money and that's the way the problem has to be addressed. Yeah. Okay. So I have another question for you and tell me if my understanding of this kind of just basic, basic, super oversimplifying and generalizing, right. But just uh, you know, if I'm off on this in my understanding, so okay. I'm at, let's say I'm a, a member of Congress and I have a, uh, lobbyist part of this powerful lobby of, uh, of this institution of, you know, animal testing and all that kind of stuff. I've got this lobby person coming in and making noise to me as a congressperson about how there needs to, you know, basically uh, saying that we need to, you know, keep this hidden, that we anything that protects the rights of animals is going to hurt this institution, trying to justify this animal testing and all this kind of stuff. I, as the congressperson, me, would be like, get out of my office before I take you out of my office. So where is the disconnect between the lobbyist and the congressperson? Because the congressperson has, uh, you know, ears and a brain. So it's like they're hearing what the lobbyist, what the lobby person is saying to them. And they're just like, oh, yeah, OK, you're right. I guess this is something that rather than being like, uh, this smells like crap to me, and I don't, I don't like this. I'm not going for this. I don't think so. That is, um, your intuitions about what should be happening are accurate. <laughs> I think it probably, you know, I think it probably would not surprise you or anybody listening that. The merits of an issue are not necessarily what is driving decisions on Capitol Hill right. about where our money should and shouldn't be spent. You don't say. Um, I think there's a lot of 
But listen, we work with dozens and dozens and dozens of incredibly kind and compassionate and thoughtful members of Congress sure. um, who are great on these issues, who want to cut waste, who want to spare animals from needless abuse. Uh, that's absolutely true. Um, but if you're a member of Congress and the university in your congressional district gets half a billion dollars, like Johns Hopkins, for example, they come in and say, we get half a billion dollars a year from the NIH, and uh, half of that maybe is spent on animal experimentation, so a quarter of a billion dollars. Uh, we need to keep that money coming. There's a lot of people working at the university who rely on that, and it's important for, for us that you not intervene and make that more difficult. Mm -hmm. That's a compelling argument for a member of Congress, because mm -hmm. they don't want to interfere with you know, jobs sure. and taxpaying citizens who are getting paid well by the government. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's not as it's not as simple as being on the, you know, the right side of the animal welfare side of things or even the waste side of things, because it's, you know, again, like anything else, it's complicated. Yeah. I think for far too long, the animal protection movement has has relied too much on pulling people's heartstrings as as a way to make change. Mm. And I think that accepting the political realities of Capitol Hill or the State House in Washington or whatever state people are in, I think accepting the political realities of that means that we get more active on these issues in a way that matters. Mm -hmm. So just calling members of Congress begging them to be nice to dogs, but making these issues that a member of Congress, like, uh, you know, like a jobs issue or abortion or all of these other very influential issues, uh, these have to be issues that members of Congress feel like if they're not on the right side of it, they could lose their seat. Right. Right. And they, on animal issues, they don't feel that way right now. And arguably the constituency for animal protection is as large or larger than any other constituency for an interest group, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if we organized in the right way, we could be more powerful than you know, the NRA or any group that has wields a lot of power. Um, but I think we're still thinking, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the, the movement thinks about things in a bit of an old fashioned way sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, if you think about supporting members of Congress, because these people have the authority and the power to get this stuff done that we want, that we've been trying to get for decades. Basic things like getting dogs out of taxpayer-funded labs. That's a pretty low-hanging fruit in the big scheme of things. Um, but members of Congress have to feel like it's an important thing, not only because it's important on its own merits, but because it will matter to them at the ballot box. Right. So one thing the leadership of White Co. Waste has done is started a sister organization that is a political action committee where we can get involved because White Coat, the nonprofit side, could not do this, but the leadership of the nonprofit and some other folks have started a political action committee called the White Coat Waste PAC, where we can get involved in elections and involved in the political side of things because ultimately that's where things are going to happen. Um, that's what's going to you know, really create this coalition of members of Congress who see why these issues should be important to them not only because their constituents care about it, because at the ballot box, it is going to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, 
And again, that's that's why every action step we have on the nonprofit side, whenever we're asking people to get involved, is we're asking them to contact their members of Congress, because it is so important that they hear from their constituents that this is an issue they care about. And if the member of Congress goes the wrong way on it, there's going to be consequences for that. Um, and that was prisonersofwaste.org was that you have a specific site set up to help people connect with uh, Congress and and voice that. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so if people visit prisonersofwaste.org, there's a form that's you just fill out your name and address. It'll automatically generate a letter and send that email directly to the congressional office that represents where you live. Mm-hmm. So it'll send it to both of your senators and your member of the House of Representatives. And I can tell you again, I was on the no, I was on Capitol Hill today. These offices receive this mail. They respond to it. And they will tell me if they are or are not getting a lot of letters about something. And if they are getting a lot of letters about something or getting tweeted at a lot about an issue, especially getting phone calls about an issue, that's going to get it towards the top of their list of things to get involved in mm. because they're not hearing if they're not hearing about something it does, you know they have no reason to care about it so if they're hearing about it hearing about it from a lot of people and then they have white coat coming in and saying we understand that hundreds or thousands of our supporters have reached out to you right uh, that's that's how we get the momentum we need these things don't happen just by osmosis right uh, and again not just cause, and because they're in the news i mean there's you know they're Every citizen has what I feel is a responsibility if they care about something to hold their their representatives accountable. Whether you voted for them or not, they're the person who represents your interests or is supposed to in Congress. And I go, again, this is the perfect time and climate to show that that doesn't always happen. But I think our issues are showing that you can cut through all that. And at a time when very little else is getting done, we can accomplish some things. Yeah. Uh, so that's why we, you know, we're very active on the grassroots advocacy side, getting people engaged. We're on Capitol Hill ourselves lobbying. We're running TV, can- TV ad campaigns, online ad campaigns, billboards. We are doing everything and anything you can to make sure people know about this issue and that we're mobilizing them to get engaged and contact their lawmakers. Because animal experimentation in the United States could be transformed, most of it eliminated, if we can communicate to Congress in an effective way. Mm. Um, Uh, So one more question for you. Um, uh, Is there a part of the conversation on your end of it where you guys are the ones, you know, whitecoatwasteproject.org is the website, um, you know, spearheading this, you know? Is there a part of this conversation at all about... uh, Because one of the things that you're running up against is it's like, but this is big industry that is entrenched and there's lots of companies that are making a living off of, like you said earlier in the show, making the crates for the dogs, making the, the equipment, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, is there any part of the conversation about, okay, what, what could all of that go towards instead as opposed I mean is the only answer to just put those guys out of business or is there is there a way to like I mean uh, you know if they're 
experimenting with animals and doing all this stuff that just needs to stop. It doesn't seem like there's a way where you could be like, okay, well, why don't you guys do this instead? And we'll put that money towards that. That's, I guess it wouldn't be the same people. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the issue, and we're kind of, you know, we're a center right organization. So more libertarian leaning is let the market decide what businesses should succeed and fail. Right now, if we think about this as a business, the market is distorted. You have the government subsidizing things and paying for things that are not profitable or effective. So if we get rid of that, then things will sort themselves out. You know, the, the projects that really have value presumably will continue. The companies who are facilitating those in however way, whatever ways they're going to are going to do it. But right now, with the government you know, spending two-thirds of the total money that's being spent on animal experimentation with very little accountability or uh, incentive to innovate and actually help people, um, there's a lot of people who are in business who certainly would not be to the degree they are if we weren't being forced to pay with no uh, input. Right. So, yeah, sure. Maybe some, you know, maybe some animal experimentation would continue, um, but it would be by, it would be funded by individuals and organizations that are choosing to do that and have a say in that. Not right now, where be where you are forced to pay without any say in how that money is spent, and without any accountability about whether we're going to benefit it in the end. Yeah. So that's the issue. Yeah. There's a lot of people making money off this. They're way, they're making way more money than they should be because they're getting paid for things that aren't actually doing anyone any good except themselves. Mm. So again, yes, there, you know, there would, there would probably be a scaling down. That's fine with us because from our perspective, this is mar the market is so distorted that there's way too many people making money off animal experimentation that, uh, shouldn't be happening in the first place. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today and for the work that you guys are doing around this. Um, and, you know, like I said, I saw this flash flash across my computer screen and I was like, what is this? And I checked it out and it worked out to have you guys on the show. And um, I just really support your efforts and on behalf of the animals and also the taxpayers. Um but mostly for me, the animals. Uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. And I've, I've learned a lot today. And um, I will definitely support you guys. And the website, again, to uh, that helps facilitate you getting in touch with your uh, member of Congress uh, to let them know that you care about this is prisonersofwaste.org. It's specifically set up for that. And the main website for the White Coat Waste Project is whitecoatwaste.org as well. And I've been talking with Justin Goodman, the vice president of the organization. Uh, thanks again for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for your support. All right, I'll be keeping up with you guys. Great. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and when I come back, I'm going to just talk about something, a theme that I've been seeing in the, in the realm of dog training and behavior. Um, so we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Dog Show! Dog Show! Dog Show! Big dogs! Little dogs! Fat dogs and Irish dogs! Eric, 
People ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me, host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. <laughs> Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country. But if you live in Western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Ann Gordon de Baragon and Whale Watching Panama, we cover the world of animals. This week, November 19th, due to sports, it's an abbreviated version of Animal World. Listen to the game and then join me from 11 a.m. to noon. It'll be a behavior training and healing Sunday, so plan to call me with your questions or to discuss any animal-related topic on your mind. That's Martha Norwalk's Animal World, 11 a.m. to noon, this Sunday only, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Conversation you won't find on the rest of the dial. Alternative Talk, 1150. And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Oh, that was a great interview with Justin Goodman of the White Coat Waste Project. If you missed this interview or any of our over 450 episodes now, you can find them all archived online on our website, dogradioshow.com, on iTunes as a free podcast. Also go to our Facebook page for our shows and conversation in between our shows every week. Just search for The Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Facebook. So there's something, I only have a few minutes for this uh, today, but I just wanted to talk about it because I'm, I've seen this a couple times now on social media where there's conversations happening and it's regarding um, training, dog training. And uh, well, I only have a few minutes and I wish I had more time for this one now, but I at least want to start this conversation. And I've you know talked about this kind of over the years when I do focus on my expertise, which is working with dogs in the context of training and behavior. But that is balancing positive reinforcement with correction and how to communicate to your dog when they make a right choice or do something that you like and how to communicate with your dog when they've made a wrong choice or done something maybe inappropriate, like jumped on you or, you know, taken something that they shouldn't have that wasn't theirs and chewed it up or something like that. Um, and most of like sort of 
mainstream, I guess, now, because now there is kind of a thing like that in the dog training uh, industry, is all positive. And, and, it, and that means no, no quality of communication to let the dog know, like, hey, don't do that, or, you know, hey, think about what you're doing. Um, any sort of correction at all. It's just all positive, all positive, all positive. And I've seen a pattern in this conversation, and that is uh, when they will reference somebody who, who, who sort of subscribes to this all positive, only praise all the time, ignore undesirable behaviors, don't ever correct your dog, ever. Um, the pattern is that they're, they will talk about some sort of abusive method of training. Uh, the recent one I saw yesterday was asking, you know, asking the dog to do something for you and at the same time jerking the leash like with a training collar at the same time as you ask the dog to do something for you. That, so oversimplifying the conversation, that's bad. And then it swings to the other side of this this spectrum to all positive only. That's the only way to go. So you basically swing from abusive training methods that are totally disrespectful to dogs, not effective, and not ethically or morally cool, I agree, to all positive only. No correction ever, no consequences, don't ever correct the dog, don't ever say no, all positive, all positive. And there's a whole middle ground that's not being talked about in this pattern of conversation that I'm seeing. And I would say especially, you know, my guest earlier on the show was sort of a, of political nature, and I would say especially now, we have to be careful about when we're talking about tough issues that we're not we're we're not you know way on one end of the spectrum and way on the other end of the spectrum and sort of you know throwing grenades at each other that way from and there's no middle ground of conversation dogs correct each other when a dog growls and snaps at another dog that's them saying don't do that, or not cool, or ouch that hurt, or don't take my bone, or stop humping me, or whatever. It's okay to set boundaries. Uh, the, so the references of like these quote-unquote aversive training methods, and then the response to that is it's like that's evidence that it's all positive only is the only solution. There's no conversation about middle ground, and what that leaves people is without tools to set boundaries with dogs where all positive doesn't work because it doesn't work for a lot of dogs who I've seen. I've been working with dogs full-time professionally for over 15 years around training and behavior. I've literally worked with thousands of dogs and I have worked with tons of people who have come from that type of only praise and ignore the undesirable behaviors and the dog's un undesirable behaviors are persisting and it's making them very hard to live with them. The dogs are upset, anxious. There needs to be limits set. And there's ways to do that that are not abusive. But this whole polarization thing just drives me crazy. And I can't comment on it online because it's not an appropriate context to get into something that's heated is through comments because that doesn't go well. So I wanted to talk about it here for just a second. There is so much middle ground 
and uh, we're at the end of the show. So I'll be back next week live from uh, 2 p.m. here on Alternative Talk AM 1150. been listening to the dog show with julie forbes wednesday afternoons at two on alternative talk 11 50 a.m never miss another episode listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on itunes or soundcloud